Welcome to the Black Miss Podcast. Welcome to the Black Miss Podcast. I'm your host, Too Black. I uh, do want to apologize quickly. We didn't have an episode for those of you who follow the show uh, in June. There's been a lot going on, uh, so we weren't able to post anything. Usually on months we take off, we usually at least post a rerun. So I want to apologize for that, particularly for to the patrons. Um, going to jump into this though um and we'll be we'll continue as we go um so today's myth is um the third world and obviously we're not saying that there's no such thing or no one has ever used the phrase third world but the idea of the third world is just this poverty stricken place um is not the origination or not how the word originated um that's not where the term came from i should say um, so we're going to get into what the third world actually was. And as Vijay Prashad, who was our guest, um, said, you know, the third world, um, was not a place. It was, a, it was an idea. It was a project. Um, so it was, it was part of an actual worldwide movement. And now it just becomes synonymous with underdeveloped, impoverished nations. And that's not where it came from. Um, and so for those of us who, you know, listen to the show and know about you know, particularly when we're talking about Africa or even other places, even some places, even here in the United States, whether, you know, or outside the United States, whether it's Caribbean or somewhere else that where African and black people are, we tend to say it's a third world country or it looks like a third world country. And we just associate that with poverty. And we often don't know where the term comes from. So today we're going to talk with historian Vijay Prashad to uh, go over the origins of, of the third world, what the third world movement was. Um, so this is a part one and two. Um, Vijay Prashad is a Indian historian and journalist. Um, he's author of over 40 different books, um, including Washington Bullets. Um, in the book, we're going to primarily pull from today, um, the darker nations and people's history of the third world. Um, one of my favorite, you know, scholars and intellectuals just to listen to, um, and read up on. So, um, with further ado, we're going to get into it, and, uh, you know, this episode will cut off, and then there'll be a part two um, the following week. Uh, again, apologize for not, you know, staying on schedule, but, you know, we, we humans out here, too. So, uh, well, let's get into it. All right. Uh, we've just done the intro, so we're here with Vijay Bashad. Um, you know, just again to say, you know, I've, I'm a big um you know, big supporter and fan of your work. Uh, I think it definitely helps me think through, you know, a lot of different subject matters. Um, but, but the third world is something that we've talked about on our show before, kind of in passing. I think we kind of debunked this briefly when we talked about, when we did an episode on the myth of Marxism being Eurocentric. Um, but, you know, you've written, you've written about the third world, um, as we talked about in the intro. So just want to get a sense of, what the third world was and is, because I know from most people around my age in their early to middle 30s and definitely younger, when we hear the third world, all we really think of is just poverty in a 
in another country that's not in the West or in the global North or something of that nature. Most of us have no sense of there being a movement or anything. So at the very beginning of the book, you say um, the third world was not a place. It was a project. Um, so just curious if you could just kind of set us up, like what's the third world? And then what also is the first and second world? Because I don't even think a lot of times we hear third world. And I don't know where, if anybody knows what the second world is either. Like, you know, so you can just kind of set us up on how to understand that. Yeah, it's great to be with you. You know, I, I love talking about these issues. I'm really glad that you had a segment on how, um, you know, Marxism is not Eurocentric. That, yeah. that when you said that, that made me really, you know, I immediately relate to you now because I think we're in the same path, which is yeah. to say, you know, it's not like I'm religious about any of these guys, you know, Marx, Lenin, I, I'm not religious mm -hmm. about them, but I want to learn from anywhere and everywhere how best to um, transcend the kind of shit that we've been stuck in for a very long time, you know. So I'm glad you said that because there are people who get caught up in these things, you know. They, they say, look, I only want to have thinkers from this part of the world uh, mm -hmm. on my agenda. And I think, you know, why would you do that? You know, you gotta, you got to read everything. You've got to expand your horizon. Look, you asked me about the third world. The third world is like any other concept. Um, it's contested. Um, it's not a thing. You know, these are just words. I'm interested in what's behind the words. Mm. Um, it's true that from the 1980s onward, when there was a terrible famine in the Horn of Africa, you may remember, um, you know, there was a song produced by by uh, people in England called Do They Know It's Christmas, um, trying to raise money for people in Ethiopia. Um, do they know it's Christmas? I mean, for God's sake, uh, what kind of line is that? Although it is true that Ethiopians, many of them are Christians, but, you know, it was a bizarre uh, line. And then in the United States, um, you know, very well-meaning people, artists gathered together in Los Angeles and they cut a song called We Are The World. Um, you know, I, I remember hearing that song, which is a pretty anthem and laughing and saying, you know, it's so classic for people in the United States to say we are the world. You're not the world, man. You're in the United States. You guys eat well. You know, there is a famine in Ethiopia. But it's that image of Ethiopia in famine, corruption in other countries and so on that creates this image um, that, you know, is supposed to um, define the concept of third world. And this was happening at a time when there was a terrible terrible debt crisis in places like Africa, Asia, Latin America, terrible debt crisis, which had been created by the dollar-based banking system, a terrible debt crisis. So as these countries began to convulse, you know, entering situations of, of famine, entering situations of indebtedness, you know, where they were going into wars out of frustration, anger, and so on, People in the north, particularly intellectuals, were being, you know, sort of uh, smug. And they were saying, look at these third world countries. All mm -hmm. of them are desolate. Um, mm -hmm. They need to become like us. They need to follow the International Monetary Fund. Uh, they need to Americanize or Europeanize and so on. Um, this was a way in which they took that category and made it into something that seemed ugly. So even now people come up to me and say, why do you use the term third world? It's such an ugly category. 
It's such a nasty thing. Are you trying to say that people are poor and so on? And, and I always say, look, you don't get the point. And what's the point? The point is that our people in Asia, Africa, Latin America fought for decades and decades and decades against colonialism, fought against colonialism. Because colonialism was wretched. There was nothing good about it. They didn't bring railroads to Africa. They brought railroads to the mines to take the goods to the port. They didn't help build the social development of people and so on. Out of that anti-colonial struggle, whether it was Pan-Africanism on the African continent or it was various shades of Patria Grande in Latin America or it's, you know, what used to be called Pan-Asianism on the Asian continent. These were saying, these were screams into the dark saying, listen, we want to live in a better world. We want a better world. And they developed a project. You know, they developed a set of ideas. This is what we want the economy to look like. This is what we want culture to be. This is what we want social life to be. No racism anymore. If you look at the Bandung uh, conference in 1955, where Asian and African countries gathered, these countries in the statement, there was a big section for economic uh, empowerment of the people, but also, and this is often forgotten, against racism. Uh, Why against racism? You know, people, especially African-Americans in the United States, um, should recognize, and, and I say this deliberately because there's something that's happened in black thought in the United States, in the black radical tradition. There's a way in which the international dimension has been taken out of it by liberalism uh, and so on after the 1970s. You know, why why am I saying that? Because there's a break, a lack of understanding that the most vicious forms of racism were not only, um, you know, inflicted on the African continent, but also on Asia. Uh, People may not know that the brutalities in the Congo are not so different from the brutalities in the plantations created by the English and the Dutch in Malaysia, in Indonesia, and even in India. You know, in India, for instance, the violence inflicted upon Indians, it's also the fault of people in India. We don't like to talk about that violence because it makes us seem smaller. We didn't fight back against them. The brutalities, the amount of people killed, I'll give you a story. You know, India is a very hot country. And for um, very many months, it's unbearable in the northern plains. And there's no when there was no electricity while the British were there, they would hire young boys to sit in the corner and pull a rope and move pieces of cloth on the ceiling like a fan. These little boys pulling the rope would go to sleep. And then the British officers used to kick them to death. Hundreds and hundreds of little boys kicked to death like that with big, heavy boots because they had slept on the job. Um, You know, it's not just child labor. It's vicious. So out of Bandung, 1955, out of, you know, various conferences and meetings emerged a project. This is what the third world is. The third world is not this place, that place, poverty or anything. It's a project to transform the world to break the international division of humanity, you know, where essentially racism divided the world into those who were advanced and those who were backward. And the third world was to say, no, we don't accept that. No, why was it called the third world? That's an interesting um, idea. Look, let's be fair, you know, let's give it to the old colonizing countries. You're the first world, okay? You keep telling us you're better than the rest of us. Okay, 
you can have it. I don't care really. You know, the person who comes first is not always the best. Uh, right, you can have, right. you stole all our wealth. You have, you know, the best healthcare. You can take first. The second world um, was basically the Soviet bloc and the um, the communist countries of Eastern Europe. After 1949, it included China. After 1945, it included Vietnam. So it wasn't just, um, you know, the USSR. And by the way, people should know that the Soviet Union was also an Asian country. Um, most of the landmass of the USSR was in Asia. It included Mongolia, SSR, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and of course, all the parts of Asia that are, you know, in uh, Azerbaijan and so on, very large part of the USSR was in Asia. We used to look at the USSR as an anti-colonial ally. You know, it was it was an anti-colonial ally. So the first world was, okay, fine, London, you know, Paris, Washington, you know, maybe Tokyo. Right. You guys can have it, okay? We don't right. care. Second world was the Soviet world, the communist world. And then the third world was this world of Asia, Africa, Latin America, where essentially people stood up and said, not any longer, not any longer. So the second world and the first world, I think sometimes even if you know what, if, even if you know what those things are, we hear about the Cold War and you talk about in the book how you know, Soviet Union was far from perfect, but it, it wasn't on the same scale as the United States and, you know, Europe uh, particularly. But we're told there's like this clash, even when sometimes we learn about the third world beyond the poverty narrative, there was this clash and then there was a, a third way, a separate way. But can we can you kind of help us understand the Cold War and why the why the countries who eventually called themselves the third world felt that they needed to build their own path? not just outside of the United States and the West, but even outside of the Soviet bloc or the communist bloc as well? Yeah, so um, a couple of things. Firstly, very few countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America uh, misunderstood the nature of the communist project. You know, in many cases, it was the communists that came in and provided assistance without asking for anything in return. Um, actually, the best example of that is not really uh, just in the Soviet Union, but it's Cuba. You know, Cuba sent uh, an army, soldiers, into Angola to mm. fight against apartheid, to fight against the right wing in Angola. Cubans lost lives fighting for national liberation on the African continent, but all they took home was dead bodies in boxes. They were not coming to take raw materials. They were not coming to get contracts, nothing. They just came in, they fought, and they left. It's an amazing story. You know, right. it's one of those instances where your heart should swell. Um, and even I was in South Africa just a few days ago, and I was at an event where somebody just said, hey, listen, we can't minimize the fact that the Cubans came here and didn't take anything away. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, they did take dead bodies home. Um, mm -hmm. That's extraordinary. The Chinese came in the 1950s and 60s, and helped build the, the railroad from Zambia into Tanzania. And you know, it's interesting. When you go to Zambia and you go to Tanzania, you will see memorials of dead Chinese uh, who came mm. and died while building a very difficult project. It's called the Tanzam Railroad. Again, in the 1950s and 60s, building the Tanzam Railroad, the Chinese didn't 
uh, take home deals, raw materials, nothing. In fact, they didn't even take their dead home. They buried them in Zambia. This is interesting because it's not often that countries leave their dead uh, overseas. You know, they often repatriate right. the bodies of their nationals for family reasons and so on. But in this case, the Chinese buried the people, the engineers and workers who helped build the railroad. They buried them in Zambia. That's really an interesting story. Um, so, yeah, everybody recognized that the Soviets came in. They provided aid and assistance. They were not asking for much in return. But why there's a third world and why did Africa, Asia, Latin America just not line up with the Soviets? And the second world is pretty simple. Many of the countries in the third world, like, for instance, the country of Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, was led by a government of the right. Leader was Sir John Kotelavala. Uh, the government of the right in Sri Lanka or then Ceylon had a lot in common in terms of the agenda with governments that had a more socialistic bent. Even in fact, the government of Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai in China, they actually shared a lot. They both wanted a new economic system. They both wanted to discuss an end to racism and so on. But Sir John Kotelavala, his name is Sir John Kotelavala, okay? Don't mistake the fact that he's a knight of the mm -hmm. British Empire, and he was mm -hmm. the head of government in Ceylon, he would join a grouping called the Non-Aligned Movement, but he was not going to join a grouping called the Communist Information Bureau. Um, they were not willing to ally with the Soviets, but they were not wanting to be left out of these developments. Look at it today. If you look at today, India has taken a very strong position against the NATO war in Ukraine, you know, said we will not cut ties with Russia, we don't want to be part of NATO, and so on. But India is governed by a right-wing government. Yeah. Uh, they want to continue to have relations with the United States, but they are still in the BRICS. Uh, they are still, you know, uh, connected to China, to Russia, etc. So this is the reason why many countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America were not prepared to go all the way to make an alliance with the Soviet Union. They wanted to carve out a political path to transfer to to change the institutions in the world. So you got to give it to them. Something interesting was going on then, and something interesting is going on now as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, with you talked to, you talked earlier about the colonialism, obviously in the West. Um, we've talked about that extensively on the show. But I, if you could just give us a sense of before we get maybe to some of the conferences that you name and throughout the book. Like what were specifically the policies of the West um, that led to p the inspiration of even pursuing a third world project, like the economic policies specifically that were practiced? I mean, this show, we focus on African diaspora, but I'm interested for the whole third world here. Like what were some of the policies that were practiced that people understood this is not something we want to necessarily align ourselves with? Well, really, the book that people should read, if they haven't read it, is Kwame Nkrumah's very important book called Neocolonialism. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you know, Kwame Nkrumah writes mainly about the African experience, the experience that the new African countries were having uh, faced with uh, pressure from the United States and its allies, Britain and France and so on. It's a really, really powerful book. It's, it's important. It's published in yeah. 1965. So it's not long, it's only six years after Nkrumah comes to power in Ghana. It's just about when he's being uh, overthrown in a coup d'etat. Yeah, I think you said 
I think you said it's like that book was almost predicting his own demise. Um, well, you know, when the book yeah. was published, yeah. the United States government protested its publication. Mm-hmm. Um, in the CIA files, there's material where they were they actually write about being upset about that book. So it's it's not in fact that he just predicted his demise. The book may have been a actual cause for them to come after him even more. I mean, they were going after him from the beginning. But when he published that book, they were furious. I mean, it's really interesting how the book review, the negative, the most negative book review that Kwame Nkrumah received was from the CIA. Um, and that's available at the CIA archives. It's a harsh review. But what, yeah. Nkrumah, what Nkrumah developed in the book, which is incredible, is he developed a sense through the dense empirical material. You know, he writes about the different companies, about military bases and so on. He develops the theory of the neocolonial structures that on the African continent and leaving out everywhere else where I'll come to other places, he develops the idea of the neocolonial system of the world, the neocolonial structures. What does he mean? He means, okay, look, we fought against colonialism. Colonialism stole our wealth. Okay, we produced goods and services. The profits for the goods and services were not reinvested in our country like they would be, say, in a normal capitalist setting. Rather than that, they were taken from our country and invested somewhere else. There was a kind of geographical displacement of profit. And that improved the capital stock in England, in France, later in the United States, and so on. And it depleted the capital stock in, say, the Gold Coast, what becomes Ghana. Um, That's colonialism. You know, there's a whole other bunch of stuff. The, The racism, the attack at people's dignity, and so on. But the basic economics of it is that people produce stuff and they began to produce things not for themselves, but for export. It was entirely export driven. So there was a kind of corruption, a toxification of the economy. But despite, and then on top of all that, the profits built by the people themselves were removed geographically. There was a displacement. So you had countries who won independence, but were poor. You know, they just simply didn't have Uh, the capital, because their capital stock had been quite depleted, right? It had been taken elsewhere to England, in the case of the Gold Coast, largely to England. So country like Ghana, new country, had to go to the banks to get money to do basic things. Because after all, when the British were thrown out, there was barely any electrification, there was barely any literacy, barely any hospitals, schools, basic things that people need. So to build all that, government needs funds, it needs capital. You can't turn to your own population and say, hey, listen, we're going to tax you slightly more because we're going to deplete your savings for now in order to build the capital stock of the country so we can have hospitals and so on. You can't turn to your people and say that because they're broke. I mean, they've been, right. they've right. been pushed beneath the level of, of, you know, socially necessary labor time. I mean, you know, many years ago, maybe 30 years ago, I wrote an article saying that, in fact, colonialism didn't commodify labor in the colonies. It animalized labor. We were animalized. We were not commodified. What do I mean by that? We were reduced to below um, the nutrition levels that we deserve. We were reduced to below the kind of social levels we deserved. Our children couldn't go to school. Um, You know, our people couldn't have a, a cultural life of any meaning because they just didn't have the resources, you know. You know, what happened is, you see, after in the last 20, 30 years, people said, no, 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 we are all equal. You know how people say that? 
that mm-hmm. you know it's it's nonsense we're all equal i don't believe that i think equality is a journey people are not equal um you know if you don't equality requires resources if you don't have schools for children let's say we we take the case of 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 like let's say sri lanka right now sri lanka is in a major debt crisis if they're going to cut schooling for agricultural workers children right the agricultural workers children will lose their literacy you can't tell me that that child who is illiterate can't eat properly you know struggling to fill their belly is the same as a child let's say in the united states uh, that's ridiculous you know and i understand there's a class division in the us even in the us there'll be a kid from say a working class family who can't you know eat schools are terrible in their neighborhood you can't tell me that kid is the same as a kid who comes from an uh, you know a family of, of wealth they're not the same no. equality is a mirage you know right, so but it's the the portion of the equality is portion is the idea like an abstract concept we're just equal within our heads but like your point liberals love that yeah, liberals yeah, love that yeah. liberals think that ideas make the world we know that's not enough ideas have to be realized into reality mm-hmm. ideas have to take on a material form you know and liberals love that liberals loves talking about human rights dignity mm-hmm. there is no dignity that is abstract dignity is concrete has to be yeah. produced yeah. and so on so in that sense what nkrumah was saying in his book is that the legacy of colonialism made it in such a way that we had to go back to the old colonial powers and ask them to lend us money so debt and if you're going to ask them for money they have leverage over you then they say i want to build a military base or then they say that you can't do this to your raw materials you can't make a cartel with other countries we are not going to lend you money so they use the lack of money in other words the need for credit they use that as an instrument to dominate the society not just the government but the society and inkruma calls that neo colonialism and that was what was happening in asia indonesia faced this in a big way there was barely any electricity in indonesia the government of suharto uh, uh, sukarno sorry the mm-hmm. government of president sukarno came to the west and said lend me money i need to electrify the world bank said okay you can electrify but if you need you know this size power plant why don't we build you this size okay bigger for the future well that meant that indonesia had to take an even bigger loan uh, and right. as the size of the loan increased their captivity to the west increased and, and you can't pay these loans off yeah it's you yeah. know it's not even a loan that's why i use the word captivity right uh, you are captive forever it's a permanent debt crisis there are 54 countries in africa 27 of them since they became independent have basically been on the verge of default every year they are in captivity you know we, we should not talk about this in a way that's just um, you know bland economic language uh, there is a power illusion here the country has no no room to maneuver and when countries did come so when lumumba appears in the congo he was mentored by kwame nkrumah when lumumba came in into the congo he was going to be this great leader the great prince among men um he had a he had a certain problem the certain problem he had was in the congo there's a big uranium mine and mm-hmm. the uranium used by the united states to make bombs to drop on hiroshima and nagasaki mm-hmm. that uranium came from the congo and because lumumba was an independent man a free man he didn't want to be captive to the united states they couldn't because they couldn't allow that uranium mine to be held independently they said that an independent mine is a mine that might be 
used by the Soviets. So they cooed him. Well, it's not the first. Remember, a few years later, you get a coup against Nkrumah himself. Mm-hmm. And then, when I was a young man, one of my great heroes was Thomas Sankara, another person who emerges in 1983, a generation later, and says, hey, listen, we want to establish a debt-free world. We don't want to borrow money from you and so on. He gave a great speech at the United Nations against the debt crisis. And they assassinated him in 87. So what Nkrumah talked about, that neo-colonial structure, that stuff is real. And if you stand up against it, you get taken out. Uh, we see this over and over again. The coups from, you know, uh, Jacob Barbens in Guatemala in 1954, before that, Mohammad Mossadegh, 53 in, in, in Iran, uh, the coup against um, Lumumba in 61, the coup against Gulat in Brazil in 64, the coup against Sukarno in 65 in Indonesia. I mean, I'm going back and forth geographically yeah. for a reason, because I'm saying that this area is knit together. That's the third world, a place that lives under a neo-colonial boot. And anytime anybody or any political movement rises up and says we want to change things, they're gone. Yeah, Chile. Yeah, the list goes on. Uh, we could have a whole show just on that. Um, are you returning back to something you said earlier? Um, you talked about how Black Thought, and I agree, in the U.S. has been severed from much of its internationalism that it previously had. Um, so in the, in the, in the book, you talked briefly about the fifth Pan-African Congress. Um, those of us who know that history know the importance specifically of that one versus some of the prior ones. Um, and you had said, uh, I'm going to quote you, the theoretical concepts of Pan-Africanism and African independence, um, gained material force during the continent-wide labor strikes of the 1940s from Lagos. In 1945, to uh, Dar es Salaam in, in 1947, dock workers slowed down the movement of goods, joined the rail post, telegraph, and factory workers, as well as farm labor and general strike against colonialism. And a lot of those people attend the Fifth Pan-African Congress. It wasn't just um, like leaders or intellectuals. Um, but one of the one of the organizers of that was also um, W.E.B. Du Bois, who, who is from America. Uh, so can you talk about the importance of that? Um, like how did the fifth African Congress of 1945 inspire independence across the continent that, that, that does come somewhat going in line with, you know, the third world movement? See, it's, it's truly incredible. When Paul Gilroy published his book called The Black Atlantic, um, the, you know, the material in the book is fascinating, but the title is the most interesting, The Black Atlantic. Why? Mm-hmm. Um, it's fascinating because there is a kind of conversation and it's, not a comfortable conversation that goes on particularly between um, North American people of African descent, Caribbean and North American, above the Latin American world and the African continent. There's a very interesting but complicated conversation. Why do I say that? It's complicated because particularly uh, under the auspices of the U.S. government, there's been a constant attempt to utilize the people of African descent in the U.S. Uh, as part of a scheme on the African continent. So even W.E.B. Du Bois, radical, born in Great Barrington and so on, when he was in Berlin, um, you know, was involved in thinking about how to take the higher, um, you know, uh, a standard of, of, of intellectual thought. This is how he wrote, you know, 
from the United States, people of African descent to Africa. The whole creation of Sierra Leone, for instance, where former people who had been enslaved brought back by the American colonization society uh, to bring civilization to Africa. You know, this is one side of Some, that uh, connection. Sierra Leone or... Um... Um, Liberia, sorry, yeah, Liberia. Liberia. Yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry, Liberia. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. But you're right to correct me. It's Liberia. Yeah. But you know what I mean. The one side of it was that this idea that look, despite the fact of enslavement and so on, that certain advancements have taken place, and people of African descent can go and teach their, um, you know, their people in Africa how to be civilized. There was one side like that, and that runs all the way to Richard Wright. When he goes to Bandung in 1955 and writes the book, The Color Curtain, where he's horrified by what he sees. You know, he says, these people are backward. They keep talking about religion and so on. And so there's that strain. And it's a pretty big strain because also at Bandung is Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who comes as a U.S. government official, uh, brings the U.S. agenda into uh, the Bandung meeting. That's one side. But I don't want to emphasize that side because there's the other side, which is really compelling. And that's the role played by people like Marcus Garvey. Very important role. Because Garvey doesn't carry the weight of, you know, a kind of Booker T. Washington, um, you know, uplift the, the race attitude. Which this Liberia thing is a little like that. Uplift the race internationally. You know, go and teach people how to no longer be backward. Teach them how to right. be forward and so on. But Garvey is different. Garvey is like, forget it. This This thing is useless. Gavi constructs the idea that there are people of African descent. This is not a natural idea, okay? This idea of the black world, for instance, of Gavi's. This is a political idea that Gavi puts on the table. And it has an impact on the African continent as well. Um, you know, inclusive of these ideas that are there in, in, in Jamaica of Rastafarianism, you know, looking up to the kingdom of Ethiopia, these ideas play a role not only in the, in the, in North America, but also in South America. You know, when the Italians invade Ethiopia in the 1930s, uh, this produces this idea of Pan-Africanism. Pan-Africanism comes from ordinary people, okay? Mm. Uh, Gavi's ranks were not the intellectuals in suits. Gavi's yeah. ranks were people, for instance, in Cuba, the black population in Cuba that had been brought by the big plantations from the English-speaking islands. You know, I'm writing a book about Teofilo Stevenson, one of the greatest boxers in the world. Um, he's a Cuban boxer. Stevenson refused to go pro. Ali was afraid to fight him, by the way, because Ali said he's a great fighter. He won four gold medals. He's a great fighter. I don't want to fight him because I don't want to lose to an amateur. He said to Teofilo, give you a million dollars. And <laughs> Teofilo said, you know, Teofilo, proud black Cuban, said to uh, the world, he said, you know, a million dollars is not worth the love of the Cuban people. It's an amazing guy, super unknown by most young people. That's why I'm writing a book called Revolutionary Jab about Stevenson and the Cuban Revolution. But the point is, it's Stevenson's parents, you know, who were landless workers in Cuba. They go to the Gavi meetings. You know, it's these people that create Pan-Africanism. It's also the dock workers in Lagos, you know, the agricultural workers. In their struggles, they have leaflets that are telling them about their being part of a black world. When we talk about 45, Manchester, the kind of people that come there have to reflect on the fact that the black world isn't just the world of the intellectuals, you know, those right. who have made it. 
it's not just the world world of of the of Liberians, you know, the people who saw themselves as advanced and so on. It's not just the world of of you know the 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 people of African descent who are able to get into U, the U.S. Congress because people did, you know, people did get in into houses of whatever, not in state houses and so on. It's not just them; it's ordinary people. And the greatest thing, in my opinion, why I admire so much W.E.B. Du Bois, is Du Bois makes a journey. Du Bois travels from his earlier ideas, mm-hmm. thinking, you know, maybe I have a lot to teach people in Africa. Talented tenth, yeah. What? Talented tenth, yeah. And talented tenth, it's a talented one percent. I mean, what yeah. tenth? The he said we can make a talented tenth. It was mm-hmm. a great, you know, a tiny population. But Du Bois journeys away from that so much so that he dies in Ghana. You know, he moves to Ghana. He mm-hmm. dies not far from Nkrumah, where Nkrumah gave his independence speech. Um, in fact, he develops a very close relationship with national liberation movements around the world, including Mao Zedong in China. Very intimate conversations with Mao Zedong. Uh, travels all over the world. He's beloved by the Egyptians. Uh, in fact, his wife moves to Egypt, Shirley Graham Du Bois. Um, so my feeling is that that Pan-African meeting, the idea of Pan-Africanism, was taken away from the elitist idea and it became a mass idea. It became an idea of these people, these Gaviites who, you know, would, would, would dream of not being disrespected anymore, of again, dream of having their children have a good education where the idea of African was not going to be denigrated, you know, denigrated even by Africans. You know, th- that was the key thing. If you read the Pan-African uh, documents, the key thing is that Pan-Africanism isn't about, uh, isn't rooted in a European idea of race. Pan-Africanism is rooted in a love for humanity. It's an internationalist doctrine. Uh, it's very important, you know, it, it occasionally re- gets reduced to an idea of race, you know. Now, mm. by saying that, that doesn't mean that the idea of people of African descent is an illusion. It's a reality, you know, people know right. that. Certain people get shot more than other people, okay, I'm not saying that, hey, listen, we're all the same. But nonetheless, the political idea of Pan-Africanism was much wider than simply an identity of origin or an identity of pigmentation or these kinds of things. It was a political argument about internationalism. And Du Bois is like the prime example from Manchester onward, the prime example of a great Pan-African leader. Nkrumah, Nirere, you know, these were even to some extent Jomo Kenyatta. These people were great Pan-African leaders because they saw themselves as stewards of the countries that had elected them to office, but they were not seeing themselves merely as that. After all, and I'll end with this, Nkrumah was the first person south of the Sahara to lead an independent African nation, Ghana, the first person. But Nkrumah immediately said, look, this is not about Ghana. I'm not the leader of Ghana. I want to create a project of the African continent. And it was under his pressure that in 1961, in, they created the ONU, organization, or OAU, Organization of African Unity. What a name. Organization of African Unity, which is today called the African Union and is based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And look, the decision... Let's base it in Ethiopia. So important. It's not people shouldn't just minimize this. It was one of the 
few countries on the continent that was not colonized, that defeated the attempt at colonization by the Italians. The proud history of not being colonized. Also, and for complicated reasons, across the black world, the role of Ethiopia was outsized. And that had some a lot to do with the way the Rastafarians had built up Haile Selassie and so on. Um, the idea that Africa could be free, the idea that African unity can happen, not as people, you know, my friend Fred Mememba, who's the leader of the Socialist Party of Zambia, says to me all the time, Africa is a group of Bantustans. We need to unite the continent. These old colonial borders need to go. And that was the vision of Pan-Africanism. It was never a narrow idea. We've got to fight to insist on its internationalism. Uh, so we, you, we've, we've alluded to Bandung multiple times. Um, we, can you kind of just give us a broader, uh, sense? Like what, like what happened prior to 1955 that, that even makes Bandung like possible? And then what was the Bandung conference? I know personally for me, I learned about it when I was young, like young, young through, um, through Malcolm X, Malcolm Message to the Grassroots. And I think a lot of people, you know, who had that journey were introduced then because he brings that up. And he... In Bandung, back in, I think, 1954, was the first unity meeting in centuries of black people. And once you study what happened at the Bandung Conference and the results of the Bandung Conference, it actually serves as a model for the same procedure you and I can use to get our problems solved. At Bandung, all the nations came together. They were dark nations from Africa and Asia. Some of them were Buddhists, some of them were Muslim, some of them were Christian, some of them were Confucian, Confucianists, some were atheists. Despite their religious differences, they came together. Some were communists, some were socialists, some were capitalists. Despite, despite their economic and political differences, they came together. All of them were black, brown, red, or yellow. The number one thing that was not allowed to attend the Bandung Conference was the white man. He couldn't come. Once they excluded the white man, they found that they could get together. Once they kept him out, everybody else fell right in and fell in line. He talks about how they they didn't invite the white man. You know, everybody, um, every, all the countries came together to set their own agenda. And I didn't even know anything about the third world movement at that time when I learned. I mean, I'm like probably 19 years old when I heard that speech. Um, so that's my introduction to it, but I know some, sometimes people don't really get that speech anymore. So I'm just curious if you could, again, what happened prior to 55 that made that meeting in Bandung so essential? And then what was Bandung? Where is Bandung? Like, you know, and all of those things. Firstly, Malcolm X is incredible because that speech is incredible. I'm sorry mm. to say, hear you say that people are not listening to message to the grassroots any longer because it's really a good introduction. Um, to both mm-hmm. uh, Pan-Africanism and, and internationalism, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah um, really. You know, the yeah. thing about Malcolm X, which is, again, slightly unrecognized, is how much of an internationalist he was. Um, you know, yes, he was a Muslim, and yes, when he traveled to Egypt and so on, uh, it was partly pilgrimage, you know, in a way, because he is mm-hmm. a Muslim, a practicing Muslim. But when he was in Egypt, he was also interested in the Nasserites. He yeah. was interested in what was happening you know, in the third world. I mean, he's a very curious and learned man. He wrote 
in his articles with great feeling and compassion for things happening in other parts of the world. But it's not just Malcolm. Martin Luther King has been domesticated in more ways than one would imagine. Politics taken out of him, but also internationalism. It's forgotten that King went to Ghana Mm -hmm. Uh, for Nkrumah's inauguration. Mm -hmm. Um, That was Martin Luther King Jr. went to Ghana for for Nkrumah's inauguration. And then then King goes to India, to the birthplace of Gandhi. In fact, King goes to Gandhi's uh, house in Bombay. Not house, but a place where Gandhi used to stay. And it's now, it it had been made into a museum. You know, this is only less than 10 years after Gandhi was assassinated. And when he was at this museum, he was shown the place where Gandhi would sleep. It was still a little bed. And King turned to the people who brought him there and said, listen, is it possible for me to spend the night here? And they said, no, you can't. This is now a museum. You know, you can't spend the night here. <laughs> but King insisted and he slept the night in Gandhi's bed. Mm. Um, he wanted to feel what it felt to be in that position. They're very interesting people, you know, and I'm very sorry to say that when I meet people from the United States now, they know so little uh, about the, the great broad-mindedness of Malcolm, of Martin. And the other thing is, I, I never got it, why people transpose the two against each other. Uh, there is actually so much that they had in common in their political outlook to the world, at least. You know, Both of them saw people of African descent as being part of the world, not just being U.S. citizens. You, you remember that toward the end of his life, King's attack on the U.S. war on Vietnam was as radical as any person in the United States, you know, as any person. Uh, his speech that he gives in 67, um, where he says it's a time to break the silence. What a speech, man. I mean, you know, it's, it, just, it just takes apart the military industrial complex and so on. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is important. Go back and, and listen to Malcolm or read that speech because he reflects on Bandung. What is Bandung? Bandung is a, is a small town. In Indonesia, then it was a small town. Now it's a big city. Um, in, in Indonesia, it's interesting. Is in the 1920s, anti-colonial forces started to get to know each other. Some of this had to do with the improvements in transportation. It was possible to take a ship uh, and to get a passage, to be able to buy a passage, and to travel. Also, um, workers on ships, and this is very important. Uh, people who worked on the ships began to get to know each other. Ship worker unions played an enormous role in the creation both of the international left and the international third world because they would get to know each other. Indian sea workers would dock in the Caribbean. They would meet Caribbean stevedores. They would have conversations. They would build friendships. They carried accounts to each other of what was doing. I mean, they were the media of the 19th century. You know, it was this... I never really thought about that. So, so just by the means of traveling, there was a lot of conversation, you know, going on across different countries and continents. Well, just imagine we're in the 19th century. There is no computer, obviously, no internet, no, no satellites, nothing. Yeah, and yeah. you have to rely on newspapers and letters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, the bourgeois newspapers, the imperialist newspapers, they're not going to carry news about the strike in Lagos, you know, for instance. Right. They're not going to carry that news. They may carry it in a negative way, but they're not going to be telling you what the workers are thinking and so on. So you don't get it from there. There are only two ways to get it. One way after 1919, when the Communist International was created, was by the extraordinary bravery of Communist International workers who went across the world disguised as businessmen, paid for by the Soviets, carrying messages. 
going to Mexico, talking to the Mexican left, telling them what's happening in Africa, telling them what's happening in the Soviet Union. So one channel of information were the communists. The second channel of information, and sometimes they were the same people, were people who worked on ships, workers, mm. who would carry letters, information, the left-wing newspapers to each other and so on. Otherwise, people would not have known what's happening in different parts of the world. There just wasn't any right. other channel. Yeah, there's no social media or something just for people who are younger that are listening. There wasn't a a way to get on Twitter and see what was happening, you know, or anything like that. There was not even phones because right. sometimes, in many cases there was no undersea cable. Some countries were connected. Uh, telegraph lines between London and India connected. But there was no way to even call people. How do you get information? Basic facts. Uh, this had to be traveled. This was carried often by people working on ships. Okay, so you got information transiting and by about the 1920s, it was possible for people to meet. Now, where do you meet? You meet in the in Europe. Why? Because people from the African colonies would come there to study. You know, uh, it's very the role of Lisbon, Portugal for the creation of the African left is indispensable because people came from Mozambique, from Angola and so on to study. Amilcar Cabral uh, sets up his first cell in Lisbon, not in Guinea-Bissau, because he gathers together people who had come to study. He himself was an agronomist, an agricultural scientist. Similarly, from India, people would come to England. They would come from Ghana. They got to know each other. You know, they got to meet. They had a language of the colonizer in common and so on. So the first gathering of the third world takes place in the most unlikely place in Brussels in 1928. Um, That's funded by uh, you know, the Soviets, the other revolutionary organizations, including the Chinese nationalists, they helped fund it. And so all these leaders come from all over the world, including from the Americas. And they gather there and they discuss the common problems they have with imperialism. It's a pretty amazing thing that... Yeah, that's the league. That, that was the League Against Imperialism. It was the League Against Imperialism. That was, that was as a counter to the League of Nations as well. Was, exactly. Yeah. Very well done. Yes, yeah. exactly. The League of Nations is created at the end of World War One or the Great War, 1919, and this is in 1927-28. So very well done because it's exactly, they use the word league in a way uh, mm-hmm. bitterly. League of Nations, no, we're a league against imperialism. Mm-hmm. Um, that's incredible, the kind of discussions and debates. But it's also important for people to know when a lot of the delegates got home, particularly those from West Africa, they were killed on the spot. Yeah. Um, the colonial regime just killed them all. So the memory of it exists, but there was a lot of brutality. After the World War, after the Second World War, a number of countries began to win their independence. You know, so for instance, they were first in Asia, and there were conferences. India was the one that led the way in 1947. India, Pakistan. So India became a fulcrum. India and Sri Lanka, to some extent, became a place to hold early discussions about the anti-colonial struggles in Indonesia. And a meeting was held in India in 1948, I believe, 48, year after, um, I think it's 1948. It's called the Asian Relations Conference, where people came from across Asia to have a discussion about um, the uh, you know fight in Indonesia, where there was a really tough battle with the Dutch. Also, Big fight in Vietnam, in Indochina, because after World War II, the Vietnamese declared independence. Ho Chi Minh declares independence 1945. The French return and say, no, we want our colony back. 
um, amazing, you know. So the French and Dutch tried to reassert their colonial power in and, and in, in Malaysia, the British tried to reassert their power. So a lot of little conferences taking place in Delhi, in Colombo to discuss the situation in Asia because India wanted to assist the anti-colonial powers. Now, remember, it's 1947, 48, 49, 50. At this time, none of the countries south of the Sahara except Ethiopia are independent. And Ethiopia was in a slightly different situation because it wasn't really hooked up with these anti-colonial struggles because they didn't participate really in the League Against Imperialism project. It was an independent country, also ruled by a monarch, had a slightly different political you know, thing. So what happened is a lot of the kind of anti-colonial movement leaders like Nkrumah and others were in dialogue with what was happening in Asia. Nkrumah doesn't go to Bandung in 1955. Others come to Bandung, but not in Krumah. Uh, in 1955, the Indonesians hold this conference called the Asian-African Conference. It's actually just one among many is what I'm trying to say. But it's the first that wasn't just an Asian conference. Mm-hmm. There had been the Asian Relations Conference, a conference in Colombo and so on about matters in Asia. But in Bandung, it's pretty incredible that the Indonesians called it the Asian-African Conference. They brought people from the African continent saying we're going through the same problems. We need to have a discussion. Um, and there, the actually pretty much the most important figure was Choi Enlai, who comes from China, because people had not met the Chinese communists yet, really. You know, uh, they had they'd come to India and so on, but he was not that well known on the world stage. By the way, the United States tried to kill Choi Enlai on his way to Bandung, his plane exploded. He oh, missed wow. the first plane and there was that. a bomb on it. it. It exploded. He came on the second plane. Um, and when they got to Bandung, um, it was mainly, again, pr- principally Asian countries that had been independent, including Indonesia. One, it's independent, great loss of life um, and so on. But also there were African liberation movements that had come. Um, there were African heads of state that came and so on. Also from the Gulf Arab region, from the Arab world. Um, it was a pretty amazing place because these movements and peoples with different political views nonetheless quickly found that they had a lot, a lot in common. And, and that's actually what interested me. And that's why I decided to say, um, you know, uh, uh, who are the people who, who came to Bandung and why did they discuss these things at, with such care and, and, and length? And why also... Did they decide to, you know, invite countries from all over the world? That's what I was most interested in. You know, there was, of course, like the Cambodians and so on. But and the Egyptians, uh, you know, when we talk about the role of Africa at Bandung, uh, the principle was Ethiopia, Egypt and so on. I mean, they played a very, very big role um, in, 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 in the Bandung uh, meeting. You know, Nasser plays a big role, but so does uh, so do the Ethiopians, you know, uh, play a very big role. Um, I guess, you know, what I'm trying to say is that this is pre the independence on the African continent. So in that sense, a prehistory where Africa comes in large numbers into the third world project is where Latin America also comes in. Not at Bandung, but in Belgrade in 1961, when they all gathered together to create the non-aligned movement. And Nkrumah's role I mean, I say, I'm saying a lot about Nkrumah with you. And the reason is because I am an enormous admirer of the work of Kwame Nkrumah. Um, the publishing house with which I work in South Africa in Kani Books is just bringing out 
a new selected edition of Nkrumah's work with a forward by his oldest son, Francis Nkrumah. Really looking forward to having that out there, you know, because this is a man who's been greatly denigrated and misunderstood and, and, and cast away. Um, but he is in a genuine revolutionary uh, in the tradition with which I um, link myself. You know, if I was to produce the top 10 revolutionaries that I would imagine, Kwame Nkrumah is high up there on the list. And why he is denigrated is because after the coup, his reputation was damaged by a lot of adverse propaganda put out there by the imperialist forces. But also it's denigrated because people misunderstand the role of Nkrumah, how he mentored um, Patrice Lumumba, how he mentored Sekutore, his friendship with Franz Fanon. All of those basic things are basically suppressed. People are excited to see pictures of, you know, a revolutionary leader with a gun. And you're not going to see that with Nkrumah. But don't misunderstand what a revolutionary is. A revolutionary doesn't have to wear dark glasses and carry a, a rifle. A revolutionary can wear a suit. Nkrumah was a revolutionary in every respect. Yeah. But you're never going to get a picture of him holding an AK-47. Just not going to happen. And if you do, send it to me. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Um... Speaking of holding the gun, and this is the last question for this, um, the Tri-Continental Conference where, you know, you talk about violence, the, the use of violence and armed struggle is really asserted <clears throat> way I, at least the way I understood it, but through the reading, it's where it's really asserted. Um, I, and obviously this is held in, in Cuba, correct? Um, the Tri-Continental yeah. Conference, and that was in 66, um, correct? Yeah. So, the can you describe the Tricontinental Conference, its significance and the shift? Because a lot of what we were talking about, there was a, I think, in the in the, some of these other conferences, <clears throat> there was a more of a preference for nonviolence. And I'm not trying to get you to take a side on that. I just want to understand it historically, there was more of a preference for that. And at the Tricontinental. Um, you know, there was, I mean, this is where the famous speech by, um, Cabral, where it talks about, you know, uh, class suicide and things of that nature. The, the, what was it? The weapon of theory. Yeah. Uh, it's a great, it's a great yeah, speech. Yeah. 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 Wonderful speech. Um, so can you talk about the significance of that? And then we can, we can kind of wrap it up and come back later. But yeah. No, you know, listen, you, you're, you're asking me to talk about something I truly adore talking about. And, you know, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you my sense of that conference. After all, the institute I direct is named after that conference. Uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, here it is. Um, the issue of violence was not actually too central to the conference. What was most central is that the non-aligned movement set up in 1961 by the Yugoslavians, Indians, Ghanaians, Egyptians, um, you know, this non-aligned movement in, and with Cuba at the heart of it was of states that had, were now formed, where these countries had become, you know, they, the National Liberation Forces had attained state power. So Nehru was the man who represented India, Nasser of Egypt, Nkrumah of Ghana, Tito of, of Yugoslavia, and Sukarno of Indonesia. You know, this was the core five that called the Non-Aligned Conference in Belgrade in 61. Um, so these were countries that were already you know, part of the United Nations and had been established with governments and so on. What happens to national liberation forces that had not yet attained power? What happens to the Palestinians 
what happens to the people of Guinea-Bissau, what happens to the people fighting for national liberation, you know, in, let's say, um, in, in the Portuguese colonies in Africa and so on. Um, they would be invited to the NAM, but as observers. Mm-hmm. And Fidel Castro uh, felt that there needed to be space for states and movements to meet on an equal footing. There needed to be a different platform. That, okay, you have the NAM that has a big role. And by the way, the Cubans played a big role in NAM. So it's not like they said we're setting up the anti-NAM. They said NAM is great and it's doing its work, bringing together governments to talk about a common agenda, put forward views at the UN and so on. And just real quick, for people, this NAM is non-alignment movement, just for people that may have missed it. A non-aligned movement set up 1961 and it's still alive today. They meet annually. Um, There are, you know, 140 members or so of the NAM out of 190 countries in the world. It's one of the biggest political blocks outside the United Nations. Um, It's a very impressive gathering. So in the 1960s, after the NAM had been created, the non-aligned movement, the Cubans decided to start a process to build another, um, you know, gathering. Now, after Bandung, there was an organization set up in Egypt called the Organization in Solidarity with the People of Africa and Asia. Uh, This was to the left of Bandung, National Liberation Movements from Africa and Asia. And they had an office in in, in Egypt, in Cairo. Well, you know, Fidel was of the view, what about Latin America? So he wanted to hold a conference of national liberation movements and governments sympathetic to them, where they start creating a path together for how to give solidarity to these movements. Um, so there was a Moroccan Marxist, um, you know, who helped build the conference. He was assassinated by the French just before the conference uh, took place. And uh, But nonetheless, uh, his name was Mehdi Ben Barka. Uh, nonetheless, uh, he was a very close friend of, of Fidel. Uh, nonetheless, the conference was held in 1966. It brought together revolutionary forces from across the world, you know, you know from Latin America, forces, you know, that were fighting in armed struggle, um, forces in Africa fighting in armed struggle, but also governments. And yes, there was a debate uh, about the question of the armed struggle. And yes, there was some sense that this is the path forward, which I think is is by itself um, was too strong a statement because different countries, different regions of the world will have different paths. You know, this was a debate that um, four years later will break out when Salvador Allende leads the popular unity government to victory in an election, you know, where the Chilean left, the communists, the socialists and others unite and win power um, by the ballot box. You know, it opens a second road. Castro goes and spends several months with Allende after he wins the election and they openly discuss this, um, that these two paths, armed struggle and then the path of election. So they kind of exaggerated the thing in Havana but to make a point, and when you go back and read Amilcar Cabral's speech, The Weapon of Theory, he's not actually saying that, you know, the weapon is theory, or, or the theory is the weapon, that, that the right. gun is, should lead. He's right. saying that the real weapon is you've got to have a clear understanding of what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, in that sense, very much like Mao. Mao didn't say, Maoism isn't take up the gun and go running into the forest. Maoism is understand the balance of forces in your country. See how you can make a revolution. And then if necessary, you might have to turn to that. But that's not the first thing. Often people misunderstand a strategic understanding and lift up tactics to the level of strategy. The tactic is 
No, I was saying you talk about. I'm, not, I'm sorry to cut you off there, but you no, talk about how um, even when it comes to Cuba or China, like people don't really didn't even take into account like just the actual land mass. So you had an island which an armed struggle took place, or in China you have this big broad like you know like really long land mass that people are fighting on, and that even just the geography of the situation differs you know, from, from country to country, let alone, like you said, an assessment of the actual forces at, 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 at hand and maybe just picking up a gun for the sake of it doesn't necessarily, you know, lead to the, the right conclusion, you know, in all cases. Yeah. Precisely. That's exactly yeah. the situation. Um, but they come to Havana for the tricontinental, tricontinental because Asia, Africa, Latin America, and they set up an organization called Organization in Solidarity with the People of Asia, Africa, and Latin America, OSPAL. OSPAL was there in existence just till a few years ago when it was closed down. Um, the point of OSPAL was to lift up um, liberation movements, the Palestinians, the Vietnamese, and so on. Um, and it played a very important role, you know, also artistically. They created immense amount of posters, magazines, and so on. Remember I said how hard it was in the 19th century to get news about liberation movements. Well, in the OSPAL magazine, which was called Tricontinental, they had interviews with movement leaders. They talked about what was going on in different countries. They talked about the fights in Angola, how to understand what are the different players in Angola that are in, in, in motion. They talked about what's going on in East, you know, in East Timor and so on. I mean, it's an incredible magazine. Um, and when you look at it, you're like, wow, man, they were really interested in the world. And that's the reason why uh, when we were setting up our institute, we decided to take the name Tricontinental in honor of this immense solidarity with every single struggle around the world. And I mean every single struggle around the world. Every week uh, I send out a newsletter, which, you know, gets read by over a million people. It's pretty amazing that... Newsletter is very, you know, taken off in a way. Um, you know, next week's newsletter or, or this week's newsletter is on Palestine, on what's going on in Palestine. Um, and it gets deep into the weeds of uh, of the life of a prisoner called Walid Dhaka, who has been in prison for over 37 years, illegally being held in prison because he was put into prison before the Oslo Accords. And the Oslo Accords said that political prisoners will be released you know, uh, as part of the agreement. He's never been released. Mm. Um, and so, you know... You said 37 years? Over 37 years he's been yeah. in prison, you know. Um, and, and what was the charge? That he belonged to a group that killed a Israeli soldier. That nobody has ever said he did anything. Uh, that he planned it or he killed the person. But he belonged to a group. So he's been in jail for belonging to that group. Um, it's nuts, man. But what I'm saying is we got to lift up story like that of an individual we got to lift up the situation a very painful situation of the military bases that are right now constraining the sovereignty of the african continent and our institute has written a lot about it tracking where are the bases like why does the u.s government have the world's largest drone base in agadez niger what's going on there why do the french have a military base in arlit niger is it because they access the uranium from there. What's going on there? People don't know about all this stuff. We are trying to build an understanding, an internationalist consciousness from the facts outward. And in that sense, we're basically 
copying, uh, you know, our forebearers in Ospal and the Tricontinental. We're doing nothing original. We're just basically trying to continue their work. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, that's just, just to kind of close it out. Um, was there anything else? I kind of, sorry, I kind of interjected when you were discussing the tactic of the gun and armed struggle. Was there anything else you wanted to say on, on that or just in general about Tricontinental, the, the conference itself? See, the conference is interesting because there's never really been much of a, a kind of scholarly look at what happened there, you know, what was the outcome and so on. It's weird that it's very well known, but there's not even a book on the Tricontinental. And I must say, oh, wow. I've been running this institute for now eight years and we haven't produced a book. So shame on us, really, you know. I mean, we took the name, but we haven't really venerated the history. So, I mean, I've thought often about doing an account trying to account for the conference and, and so on. But I just want to return, you're, you're right to say that gunpoint wasn't finished. Um, you know, the thing is that you always have to do a concrete analysis of the concrete situation and build your strategy from your assessment of how things are now. Um, you can't leapfrog to a tactic. You got to go slowly, methodically, also got to see where people are at, you know, build the confidence of people. Let's take the Black Panther Party. Big misunderstanding and glamorization of the guns. It wasn't about the guns. Um, that was just one important incident or maybe a few important. One important incident was when they said we're going to go to the California State House in Sacramento and carry our guns with us because it's legal. And also we want to take advantage of the laws of the United States and say a black man, because principally black men were in these armed groups of the Panthers. A black man has the right to carry a gun as much as a white man. They were testing the limits of the law. It's not like they were going into an armed struggle situation in the United States. People misunderstand that. They were in the urban context of Oakland, walking around with guns. They were not in, you know, going up into Colorado in some like these white, you know, right wing fascistic <laughs> groups that go up and build. Nobody from the Panthers built a commune somewhere to start a base area for an armed struggle. Okay. They were trying to utilize and point to the gun laws in the United States and how they, it showed so deeply the anxiety when a black man carried a gun. Okay, That was that. Mm -hmm. What was the Panthers doing? Panthers was about lifting the confidence of people in the neighborhoods, providing breakfast to children, uh, chant, having children chant, I'm black, I'm proud, so that that cultural denigration doesn't seep into their system. Um, you know, they held protest marches. They held conversations with Ivor Ken and the Red Guard in San Francisco about what's going on in China, about Maoism. They talked to the young lords in, 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 in the New York area. Um, you know, what's the situation with Puerto Rican independence? The Black Panthers go and set up an office in Algeria. I mean, for God's sake, uh, just because there are pictures, which are kind of cool, you know, of, of, of these men with guns, you know, a mm -hmm. famous book written about Robert Williams. Uh, even Robert Williams, Robert F. Williams, the NAACP, the man who wrote a pamphlet, you know, Negroes with Guns is the name of the pamphlet. Yeah. Robert F. Williams is not saying let's go into an arms struggle. Williams is saying let's we have the right to defend ourselves. Okay, that's a very different thing than guns is the road to liberation. It was a strategy of self-defense. Uh, and Robert F. Williams is a very complicated figure. You know, I, I read a biography of him. I thought it was quite bad, actually, which... You know, didn't actually come up with a sense of of what drew Williams into a lot of this politics. So I, I, I feel like 
there's a glamorization of guns. And in a time of when we are weak as a left, we shouldn't dance around with these things because this is how our enemy divides us. And they use this glamorization um, to set people into ways where they can get easily picked off by the state security. You know, um, people start doing stupid things. And, and that's exactly when they start arresting you. So you've got to be careful uh, with some of this stuff. You know, we want to transform the world. You know, I want a world revolution, telling you directly here. Uh, I would like that. Uh, I, I'm not interested in, in doing things that just, you know, jeopardize the building of the confidence of the working class. Um, you know, the working class doesn't need elitist politics, either of elections, the kind of elitistness of elections, or the elitistness of violence, because that's also a form of elitism. You know, we are going to mm. separate ourselves from the mass. You've got to have a mass line. Um, here in places like the United States, take a lesson from Malcolm and, and Martin. Neither of them, for their different politics, neither of them took an elitist path. Both of them had a mass line. Always mobilize people. Now, Malcolm X, I think, was far more democratic in his mass line, far more democratic. Uh, but I don't think Martin Luther King Jr. was any, you know, was like an elitist. I, I don't agree with those assessments of him. Also, the mass line always draw people into struggle. Remember, one of the last things he's involved in is a struggle by sanitation workers. He comes to address them, to give his solidarity, not to tell them what to do, to listen to what he says to them. He doesn't tell them what to do. He's giving them solidarity. He's trying to lift their confidence. You know, the mass line is the lifting of confidence of people. So we join together as human beings and we transform the world. Not that we separate ourselves from the people and go in a certain direction. And I abhor sectarianism. I don't like that at all. I think you've got to always walk with the people. You cannot detach yourself from the people and say, I'm right, the people are wrong. If that is the case, good luck to you, man. Yeah. Man, that's a that's a good way to close, especially with the, some of the critiques you had of of um the third world and you know some of the ways that they that certain countries you know tended to drift away from the people. We can get into that next time. Okay. Fresh out the plane in a whole nother state. I'm trying to eat down a whole nother plate. Seem like my homies were stuck.